the top. Okay. Drop that. Yeah. Feel the funk, y'all. From Alpha to Omega, VHS to Beta, PlayStation to Sega, my skill is still greater. The sickest thing since BD, wicked like VG, with my life crooked like the left finger on ET. Please believe me. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to Sends and Suffers podcast. I am your host, Mario Stanley, and this episode is awesome. Justin is my buddy. I'm not going to get too much into that, but what I do want to give you guys is an announcement. Rachel is the winner of our stickerization lottery. What is that you might be asking? Every few months in the sticker club, which you can join, go to sensandsuffers.com, mariostanley.com. I turn one of my members into a sticker, invite them to be a co-host, and we do a little mini podcast on them talking about why they are so rad and why they love the show. So if you guys aren't already a member, please don't miss out on the cool things that we're mailing out. And sticker club members... There's an extra little something coming in the mail for you late December. Enjoy the show. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Sends and Suffers podcast. I am your host, Mario Stanley. And I normally would give the forward a little bit earlier, but, you know, we're me and Wolverine are just hanging out here and just kind of getting into it. Uh, he discovered a margarita drink and I have found my old friend whiskey. And so we're just going to dive into it. So um, why don't we, so why don't we start with, cause I, I'm sure none of my listeners know who you are and uh, I'm going to steal the spotlight for one more thing. This man has probably been by far one of the most influential people in my climbing in the perspective of, it's hard to find just rad, genuine people who are down to earth, who climb like superheroes, but at the same time are just someone that you would, I mean, this dude could be standing behind you in the DMV line and you never know. So uh, who are you? Where, who are you? Where are you from? And what is your relationship to climbing? Because I guess that's how we know each other. You do a lot of other things, but yeah. So Yeah. So um, my name is Justin Parton and uh, I'm originally from Texas. It's where I grew up. Um, Long ago and far away, I like to say that I expatriated from the state. Um, didn't suit me, fourth generation, but uh, made my way out. I went west when I was about 17 or 18 and uh, never essentially looked back. Um, Thank God. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, and climbing for me was kind of like when I was a kid, like, you know, I was a kid that was always climbing trees and I would climb the door frames in my parents' house and my mom would be irate because... They would be pretty thin, like just veneers and I would pull them off. And, you know, I loved watching the amazing Spider-Man and probably when I was about 17, I stumbled across a climbing magazine, strangely enough. And probably it's not that strange. Most people may have tripped into it this way, but I saw this dude on the cover and he was doing something that I immediately connected to, even though I had never done it. Do you remember the magazine and or issue? I, it was, a, it was climbing and okay. I don't remember the issue. It was a long ago, far what was away. the cover? It was like some guy, you know, and it was like, it was like late eighties, early nineties. And so, you know, who knows who it was, mm -hmm. but I could, I could make a couple of guesses, you know, about like during that time. And, and, and so, um, I moved out West to go to college, um, and, uh, started climbing, uh, found my way into climbing, found a friend, just like everybody seems to do back in the day, especially in the like early nineties. Um, and, uh, I kind of came up the old school way. 
So, you know, back then there were no gyms, there was no information, you had limited guidebooks. And so you essentially found somebody who you hoped to knew a little bit more than you did. <laughs> and then, <laughs> and, and then you, you kind of went for it. And so, and I, dude, I fell in love. Like it was my jam and it, and it has been now for like 27 years that I've been, you know, considered myself a climber. How old are you now? I'm 46. You don't look a day of it. Yeah, I feel a day of it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, dude, so you and I met, and we talked about this earlier today. You and I met, we've known each other for basically 15? Like 13, 14 years. Yeah. 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 And so when did you start climbing, which is Summit Dallas now, but was known as Dallas Rocks back then? So I had had kind of a, you know, in my early twenties, I was, I was climbing, guiding, doing that kind of thing. And then, uh, found my way into the Peace Corps. Um, and that was kind of an aside, went to Africa, lived there for like almost, um, three and a half years, almost four years. Um, I extended out a little bit and I, I came back and at that time I kind of had, you know, I was living the dream in the West. I was a backcountry river ranger up in dinosaur national monument. I had thought I had a line on a backcountry ranger job in, uh, uh, the white river national forest over in like, that's everything over by Aspen in that okay. area. And I was going to be do the hut to hut stuff and it fell through circumstance, whatever. And, uh, I was like 30 and, um, I was going to race mountain bikes for the winter with my brother. I was living in Flagstaff, Arizona at the time and, and <clears throat> had a knee injury. I was, that's when I found gym climbing actually. Oh. And, um, came across like air course stuff and like really realized the potential and training for climbing at that point. Before that I had been pretty poo poo about the whole thing. I was pretty old school and uh, I was like, you know, you don't fucking go to gyms. So when you started climbing at Dallas rocks, is that when you first started like entering the world of training for climbing? No, I had kind of entered before that when I, I went to the gym in, in uh, and I can't remember the name in, in Flagstaff and they had a really good gym there. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's when I noticed like a huge jump in my strength and my, my abilities was just being able to go all the time. You know, before that, like back in the day, we would climb like all the time, but it'd be outside. I, mean, I remember going in Durango cause that's where I'd lived. Um, you know, we would go boulder all the time in the winter, but it was always variable. And I remember people would have woodies and, you know, you'd play like add on or whatever. Mm-hmm. And like, and it would be like the novel thing. Somebody would have a woody in the garage and everybody would be stoked and you go over there, but it was pretty limited. And like the idea of like, like training, like, it had like, I had looked at a lot of that stuff from like, you know, I'd read like fingers of steel and like, there were some things like Dale Bard had put out and, um, who was that cat that climbed a lot in the needles back in the day. Um, also up in, uh, okay. city of rocks in Idaho. I can't think of his name off my head, but he was like super amazing. Um, but, uh, you know, I hadn't really found a lot of that stuff. And then, and, and, but then I went to Flagstaff, started climbing there and then I, I got hurt. I injured my knee. I was 30. I was living on my brother's couch. I had no insurance, no money. And I was like, I have to do something with my life. And so that I moved back to Texas for a while to, um, and I I went to nursing school is what I did. And, uh, and that's when, so when I met you, I had just gotten out of, well, maybe I was still in nursing school. I think you were still in, because I remember you were talking about taking courses because you and I, I think, I don't remember I don't remember the course of interactions of how you and I met. I just, I do remember you walking into the gym uh, and I can't tell you if this was like your first or third time or whatever, but I do remember you walking into the gym and then you and I just striking up some casual conversations. Mm-hmm. And it was at that point, I think maybe let's just say for the sake of conversation, our 10th or fifth co- t- talk. Mm-hmm. I think that's when we actually started really like actually climbing together because I want to say like you actually came to the gym a day that I wasn't working. 
and we started climbing then. But I remember just at some point in time, I was like, all right, this dude's like legit. Like he actually climbs out the words. He actually knows what he's talking about. And, you know, within the world of climbing, because, you know, let's just be honest. Dallas is a con- concrete jungle. Ain't nothing. No, but like that was the thing like back, you know, and, and dude, Dallas has put out some actually there's been some amazing climbers who have come out yeah, of Dallas. No, I mean, Jeff I'll, Jackson is like a, a classic example. I mean, he wrote the guidebook to all like the rest the trestles and stuff. And I mean, the man has arguably bolted a lot of the Western slopes mm-hmm. majority. I mean, I don't know. I say majority. I don't know. But like the Carbondale I, area for sure, man. I mean, I've climbed in the Red Stein. I've climbed at the frying pan. I've climbed in the Narrows, like I, all of that stuff up behind there. Like if you go up into like um, behind Redstone up by Marble, like mm-hmm. that dude is prolific. He is I everywhere. Mean, I like, yeah, like that whole, I mean, like he was in the Wichita's back in the day. Mm-hmm. He was, yeah, I mean, instrumental. And I, um, and he now lives in Maui, I think, or somewhere. Yeah, he is a professor of literature or something like that. He, he's a professor. Yeah. And I, that, that's what I know. I had a chance to meet him. Uh, two years ago at the American Alpine Club banquet, he received an award. I don't remember what award it was. Mm-hmm. I remember finally meeting him and I was like, you look like the typical hippie climber and you look like that person that everyone would misconstrued as like not that strong of as a dude. Dude's a sandbagger. He is a sandbagger extraordinaire, man. Like I have been on so many Jeff Jackson routes and I'm like, fuck you, Jeff. Like this is not like you... Yeah, he's a total sandbagger, but just awesome. I mean, and then Pachero Chico too, like he was all yeah. down. And I mean, that dude is like, I mean, he's, I, I mean, I, I'm not going to say he's sunk more bolts than anybody else in the world, but I think no. he's definitely sunk more bolts than a lot of people in a wide variety of areas. Yeah, yeah like, for sure. Like, you know, if, if every bolt that he ever sunk had his initials on it, you'd find stuff all over the place. But, you know, it was something that you said earlier on when we were, you started out this thing and, and basically like kind of the thing is, and I think. Like, so climbing in popularity, like I started climbing at a time when climbing was still a marginal experience. Like mm-hmm. people were living a lifestyle, you know, the dirt bag was still a real thing. Like, yeah. you know, I still like, you know, the idea of Fred Becky being out there and getting after it until he's like 90 or whatever. But I mean, this is long before then even. And like you didn't, there were, there weren't a lot of resources, right? There weren't a lot no. of opportunities. But the one thing I see that's different now than, or at least with like when you introduced me, you're like, you wouldn't know this guy climbs hard or not that I climb hard, but like. Yeah, you do. But that, you know, like that, that this person is like, it's, it's, you're, you're in it to the core. Right. But the yeah. thing is, is like, I think you talk about people like Jeff Jackson or, and, and there's a slew of, of folks out there, right. That mm-hmm. are like, but what I really respect and like the ethic that I was brought up in is that like, you do what you do. Right. And that's mm-hmm. your thing. And if you want to pursue it to whatever level you go at, like, that's up to you. And it's not about like how hard you climb or what you do or what you show or yeah. like people looking at you. It's about living the experience and like being in the places that you are, you know, and like, dude, I was climbing in the black the other day and I haven't been out there in ages. And like, and I was totally spent. Like I'm a dad now. I am old now. I do not have the physical fitness I used to, but still even then, man, you know, I'm like 10 pitches up and like, I'm watching swallows like fly and they're getting caught in the sunlight. And like, no matter how far out you're, you're drug out, you're, you're, it's just, it's that experience of being in those amazing environments and, and really presenting yourself in a genuine way, you know, and really, and, and taking it for everything, which is good and bad and like the triumph and then the ugly, right. But it's about all of those things to me and about being like genuine 
and like and sharing that love with other people. And and one of the things I see today a lot of times is people do come out of gyms, right? And there's a lot of ego that I feel like that comes. There's ego in climbing, period. Like, yeah, I mean, it's an ego-based sport, in my opinion. I've said that a lot. Well, I think it can be, but I think when you, like, if you get older and you embrace it and you're in it for the long haul, like, I think that the one thing I learned most, and it took me years, and if anybody gets anything out of this conversation, if they listen to it at all, the one thing I can say is embrace all of your failure. Yeah. Because that's the only thing that makes you improve. And like that thing, like the true, and it's taken me 20 something years to finally figure out like the true way to embrace it. And those that figure it out early is if you are not afraid to fail, if you don't care what people think about you, if you really let it all hang out and you like flail and then you come back and you try it again and Mm -hmm. you flail some more. And every Mm -hmm. time you do that, if you do it with intention, you start to improve and you get better and you just embrace the experience, man. You remind me of a phrase that I say to the kids all the time. I'm like, you know, if you're not falling, you're not trying. Mm-hmm. And if you're not trying, you're not learning. You said something a few moments ago that made me think about it. You know, you're right. Like, I definitely would agree with you that a lot of gym climbers that are coming out nowadays are, I'll put this in a different saying, they want to get the, they want to get the Instagram photo or the selfie photo of them on the route, whether they send it or not, it doesn't really matter to them. And I think that's definitely a portion of ego. And I think that is something, but you know, you bring up an interesting point you and I started climbing in two very different times. And one of the things that I always say about climbing being an ego-based sport is I, I, a lot of, except for you, and I think you were a big change in this actually. And a lot of my experience climbing you in a very, like, there's like a sprinkle of people, but you know, I came up and there was a lot of machismo in climbing. And there was a lot of like, really like sexist rhetoric and things like that. You know, don't climb like a girl, don't be you know, don't climb like a little bitch and all this other stuff. And that's when I say, like, when I bring up ego, I bring up like, there's this um, automatic, like hard man attitude that's always has to be in it. You know, my relationship with you and a few others have definitely really allowed me to continue to believe because, you know, that that never really jived with me, but it's allowed me to continue to believe that like climbing is an experience. Climbing is about the whole pie. It's about the whole thing. Like if you're cooking food from scratch, it's like the whole process. And I think that you kind of hit the nail on the head. It's like, you're trying to experience the whole thing. I do think people get lost in that and they don't get the chance to experience the whole thing because of their ego and where they're coming out. Because I agree with you, like the best part of the climbing trip to me is really just like the beginning where you start talking about the trip, you start planning it, you try going through it. You finally get there, whether it's a road trip, whether you're flying and it's the whole experience. And it's funny. It's like people always to ask me like, what's your favorite part or what's this? Like, what was the coolest part of the route? And I'm like, you know, the route itself was a big part of it. Don't get me wrong. But the experience that you're having with that individual person or your crew, like that community experience, whether it's with one person or two, like that's really what's important to me. And that's what I've always like really been gravitated towards. Cause you know, once I realized, once I learned how to rock climb and then once I learned how to rock climb outdoors proficiently and I learned enough from enough people and I felt like I could really show people what I was doing, I immediately started bringing people out with me and it mm-hmm. started making it a much better experience in that regards of like, uh, and maybe like in a millennial kind of a way, like people want to be seen doing it. Well, I think, and even like, I think it, it's ego based period. Right. I think that's the thing you always have to fight. It's just not millennials. It's anybody who's ever climbed. Like when you start to attach your self-worth to your success. Right. And that's, that's a trap that we, everyone who climbs and you climb a lot, you all fall into that. The yeah. period end of statement, I think. Yeah. 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 I would definitely agree with that 100%. So I guess, so your dad now, 
Uh, how's that experience going? Dude, it's, it does not make you a better alpinist. Uh, <laughs> I had somebody ask me that the other day. She's like, so are you a better, like these ladies I was climbing with and they're like, she's studying for AMGA and they were going further all around. And I was, she was like, so you think it makes you a better alpinist? And I was like, no. <laughs> I think you're going to have better patience on the wall now. I definitely learned a lot. I've learned a lot of patience. I definitely don't, I don't feel like I need to be somewhere else anymore. You know what I mean? Like yeah, you're always yeah, trying yeah, to like I pack it that. in and you're like, when you have a little kid, you're like, I'm here in this moment, which, you know, it, it, especially on like, if you do adventure climbing, you mm -hmm. know, like, which we were talking about, I think like a lot of things yeah. about it, like the, it's the whole experience. Right. But it's like, you know, climbing desert towers or climbing in like the black or going to Yosemite or even like anywhere. Like if you have big routes, like going to Vegas and climbing in the red rocks, you know, like it's, it's, there's a lot involved and it's not, or, you know, the winds, whatever it is, like yeah. you, it's a big experience and you have to learn that ability to accept everything that comes with that and to temper like just your expectations, I think. And mm -hmm. like, and just also be patient and allow it to happen as best you can. So uh, a question I have for you and I, cause I've, I think you probably heard this a lot too in your climbing history, but I have a lot of friends that have become dads or become parents now and they back off their climbing and a lot. And uh, you know, you and I have talked a little bit about this. I think you had the temperate because of, you know, being a parent a little bit and backing it up, but I don't feel like you are backing up from your climbing or am I wrong? Are you, do you feel like, do you, do you feel like your risk, your risk assessment or risk tolerance has changed now and the way you approach climbing is going to change because you're a parent? Well, I think I definitely think differently than I used to. So like, I don't know if my risk tolerance has changed that much. I think objectively, you always have to look at what you're doing. You know, mm -hmm. I've backed off stuff that I've wanted to do before, long before I had kids. Yeah. And, you know, just because I was like, it wasn't the right partner or it wasn't the right conditions or like, yeah, there, the, you know, that the mitigating factors that I could control were just, it wasn't enough for me to feel comfortable. And especially in the back country, if you're somewhere where it becomes really critical, if something happens and you're trying to, you have to get out or you get hurt. So, you know, back, back in the day, even then I've always been, you know, relatively mindful of those things. I think, um, I still have ambitions, but they, they just change. Right. I mean, mm -hmm. you have to like, you have to fit it. It's, it, it's not so much that I've changed, like, my tolerance for like, I want to climb hard or I want to climb things that are hard for me or to be challenged. It's that I have to fit it into timeframes now. Uh, okay. And so like, that's the big thing that changed for me is like, I can't go take, you know, a month long road trip anymore, or I can't go take like, you know, even like taking two weeks to go try to climb somewhere right now. It's just not like, it's not going to happen. I think that cycles back into like what you're talking about, like really introducing training. And so do you feel that now you kind of have to really kind of rely on training to kind of really get you ready for that? And I know I, this is definitely for me too. And other people, clients of mine that we talk about this, like finding that balance of like when you're ready to go, you know, I mean, cause like usually you have a timeline. So theoretically, you know, if you're going through your phases, you should be ready, but that's not always true. Uh, and I, so is that something that you're, I guess, getting ready to lean on more? Yeah, I think definitely you have to like, if you go dad style, which is just like smash and grab, you're just like, I got this window of opportunity and this is what I got. And so hell or high water comes. And like, I think the one thing is you actually become more motivated because you don't have time to fuck around anymore. Yeah. And so like, if you have the opportunity, like I, you know, I do the cannonball run. Like I had to go, like I had a friend and like I had an opportunity to go do 
the cruise with him the other day and we did the scenic cruise and I've done the cruise a couple of times, but I'd never done the scenic variation on it. Mm -hmm. And I had like a day and I got up at three o'clock in the morning. You know, I was like, I met him at five. We were like climbing by like seven 30, you know? And I like, I have the day that's the day I have. And like, that's the day I was like, if it's shitty out, if it's windy out, if it's a little too cold, like doesn't matter. Right. Like you're like, that's my day. That's my day I got. And so I think in a lot of ways, you know, while parenting kind of constricts you or like puts some impediments in your way, it also lights a fire under you because you don't have the luxury anymore of being like, well, we'll just come back tomorrow and try it again. You know, like that doesn't exist so much anymore. (laughs) So you're just like, let's get the shit done. Like right now. Dude, that's awesome. And I'm like really excited to hear that. And I definitely think more people need to hear that. Because I think a lot of people just pump the brakes. And like, I mean, I, I, there are they're literally friends who have sold me their entire trad rack, their crash pads, all their gear. Like I'm a parent now. And like this, this is, this is, I can't do these things anymore. And I've always thought to myself and I'm like, that's just, that, that's not the case. You know, like I don't have kids of my own, but like, like that just cannot be the case. And I think, I don't know. I think people need to hear that. Like, that's not the case because I think most people pump the brakes on adventure and if you are a person who thrives on adventure to begin with i don't know just because you have kids doesn't mean you need to kill that part of your soul well and I, you know i think maybe too it's like the location right like out here in the west like especially in the western slope like i know a lot of parents who crush and it like on all like you know whether it's like they're backcountry skiers or they're climbers or they they ride like i think a big part of that is that they they just introduce their kids into that lifestyle. And like, that's the, one of the things that I, I've tried to like focus on is like, you know, I want my daughter to grow up and be able to like, you know, and she sees it like, you know, me and my wife train all the time. We're always doing stuff. She's a part of it. Like, you know, I want her to grow up thinking it's normal to go cross country skiing or go downhill skiing or to go out and climbing with dad and, and, and just to be a part of that process so that she knows like that's just her life. Right. Like, yeah. You know, that's, I I always kind of think about like, you know, what, what would I want? Like when I was a kid and like, when I found all the things that I loved to do, I was like, what would have happened had I found this, like, you know, 20 years or 10 years earlier, like, had I grown up in this and, you know, you never can tell, maybe I would have taken it for granted or, you know, maybe you would have just been super rad and like, you know, (laughs) with all the, got a head start, man. And so like, you know, that's the thing out here. And there's a lot of parents out here that like, do totally crush everything. Like, you know, you go to rifle, we, we call it like, you know, it's rifle mountain park, but we call it like rifle daycare because like, it's super easy to get to the crag, you know, and everybody, like people bring their kids out there and like, there's kids that grow up, like, you know, Maddie Hong grew up out there. Steve Hong, like just took him out there, you know, like, and and Steve Hong's like legendary in the desert, you know, I mean, that dude's like, and he's still, dude, I've seen Steve Hong out there still, you know, when you go out and dude, it's rad. Like you just, so I think that there's that ability in there. If you, it takes, it takes extra effort. It is not as easy as it once was. Like you don't just casually go out, but like, you know, the people that I know, like you just, and you suck it up and you find partners or families that want to climb and you, you do the best you can. And you know, the kids get bigger and eventually you get more time and I think it becomes easier, but like at least you've introduced your children to that love of like being outside. Like yeah. experiencing things like being physical, you know, cause I think that's so much that we miss these days in yeah. this, in, in this country, you know, is like the idea, you know, we have this really, this, this idea of being like physical or being whatever. But like, I think the thing is in the end, 
like everybody's obsessed with like working out or doing whatever. But really, I think what people miss is just like play. Yeah. Like all the things that I do, like I do because I love to do right. None of that shit is working out. It's like me going out and playing like I'm a big kid. And like, I think that's that keeps me young. And I think that's something that I would like to teach my daughter. So. Yeah, I, I can vibe with that. And I think it's funny, actually, like two years ago, the Texas State Board increased recess because they realized that it makes education, it makes everything else. And I feel like everyone else in America was like, duh, not enough people play. And I think, I don't know. I mean, now that I used to mention that, I'm very curious if people's, I would love to hear from the community, but like, what is your definition of play? Because I think people don't look at play like I don't think people correlate play and adventure together. I think people are worried about play as this like structured game as baseball, as soccer, as like, you know, it has to fit within this 90 minute window. It has to fit within a basketball game and play really is like, you got to, if you want to understand how to play, you watch children. Like it doesn't have this start or end time. It doesn't have any really rules or structure to it and the materials and everything that's involved in it are whatever is available to you. And I agree with you. Like, you know, I mean, it doesn't have to be this climbing, this great climbing epic adventure, even though that's what you and I like. But I do think that's interesting that you say that. And I don't think that people really embrace that for the way it should be. Well, I just think like, you know, when I was a kid, like we would go to the creek or whatever. Right. And like, so we didn't have anything like, you know, I go out to my grandmother's farm or whatever. And, and we would go adventuring. Right. Like that was it. Like you yeah. would like and you would pick up sticks and slide in dirt and you'd be in the mud and you'd be in the water and you would look for animals and like you know, all that and you pick berries and like all of that stuff was just like, and like, I kind of feel like that is just an extension of my life as I grew up. Like I just never stopped doing that stuff. I just found a different way to express that feeling, you know, and like through a different set of adventures through like, it became like, I guess in some ways, not even more mature, but just like, I found a way to express my adventures. Right. And I found a way physically to do that, that I really like, it just, I have a deep connection as, as most people who climb yeah. further. <laughs> like when you find it and like, there's either people who climb or the people who don't. And I don't mean that in a bad way, but like, no, but I mean, everyone knows what you mean. Yeah. I mean, there are people who, who casually recreationally may go out with friends or whatever. And they go to the climbing gym and it's a novel experience. And then there's the person like you and me and you're like, Oh shit, I found my thing. Like it just touches you like to the, to, like to the core of like your person. And you're like, well, this is, I'm fucking, I'm a, I'm hooked. I'm a junkie. Like, you know, and, and it's, and it's that extension I felt like, cause it was like, it, it makes you, there's so many like facets to it. Like one is just that as aspect of playing adventure. And the other is too, just like that being totally immersed in something, which I think we were when we were kids as well. But like, and it's that experience of being like present, right? Cause like when you're climbing hard or you're climbing in whatever that level is, right. Yeah, it's challenging. You, you it's challenging. have to be in the, you have to be there. Like right. you can't like mentally, physically, emotionally, you can't be anywhere else. No, exactly. You have to be present in the moment. And that brings this whole, like, and that's the moment of freedom, right? When you're just mm -hmm. like, Mm -hmm. And that's the, the sensation that you always are like, I'm always looking for when I'm climbing is like to be fully like in the moment, in the present. And that like is what makes, I think everything just, that's, that's what makes that a special, for me, that's what touches me. People find it surfing, people find it riding, yeah, whatever it is, you know, whatever your thing is, but you are right. Like you're fully immersed in the moment. And I think this is like when we were talking about earlier and I recommended that book uh, with winning in mind to you, you know, like, and there's also like, you know, catching fires, um, the rise of Superman, getting into this flow state, but realistically it's just getting into that state of, let's just simply call it bliss. Like the, I don't know what else to call it, but like you're climbing, you're doing your sport and you're just in this state of absolute bliss and you're just like, there's nothing else. Like 
And I know for me, like when I'm on the wall, it's like people always ask me, it's like, do you remember it? People find it funny that I can remember every single move over the route. But at the same time, they're like, what else is going on? I'm like, I couldn't tell you. I can't remember anybody's birthday. I can't remember anything else. But I can tell you in those moments of like true happiness, true joy, true, just like, like the whole, everything fades away. And I know it sounds super cliche, but like every single thing fades away and it's just happiness. And I'm just thinking of the moment of like getting out of your tent in the middle of the morning or getting out of your van or whatever you have. And it's like crisp, cool air. And you know, it's the day that you're going to climb and it's oh, like yeah. you're giddy. Like you're literally like, I feel like my insides are like warmer than the rest of me. Well, dude, like, I was telling Laura that the other day. Cause she was like, you're going to go climbing tomorrow. And I was like, I don't know if I can sleep. And she's like, what do you mean? I'm like, I haven't got to go climb in a long time like this. And she's like, well, are you nervous? And I'm like, yeah, but like a kid on Christmas, like that's how I was like, that's what I told her. I'm like, it's like being a kid on Christmas. Like, you're like, I can't wait for it to come. Like, it's not like, it's not going to go fast enough. And you're like, I don't know. I'm that way before taking a flight, like anywhere I'm going somewhere to go on a climbing trip and I'm going to fly. Like, I just, I have immediately agreed to, I've like, I've accepted with myself that I'm just going to finish my last minute packing that night of, because I'm too, I'm too like jittery to go and people ask me all the time i'm like are you excited and i'm like you know and i have to be honest like i am a little bit excited but i refuse to let myself to be fully excited until i'm standing at the base of the crack sure at that point i'm like, like yeah. put the batteries in the toy put the batteries in the toy now you know and i think that's like uh i don't know that's just that's my thoughts with that I, i'd kind of like to switch gears here kind of talk about like if you don't mind your profession because we were talking about this earlier today. You and I both think this way, but like how people don't really think about like all encompassing, like everything that needs to go into it. And you and I just finished talking about like, you know, not wearing, you know, camo or dark clothing or all the things all the time when you go out climbing, because if you need rescue, you need to be visible. I guess the question I would like to ask is what are the most like common things you as a search and rescuer really were like, man, this would make my job a lot easier to save your life. If yeah. it was X. Well, well, that's, there's, there's a lot to encompass that. So first of all, like I'm, so I'm a flight nurse. And so I, I work for a service, um, uh, through St. Mary's hospital. I live in Grand Junction. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so, and I've, I've been a flight nurse for about eight years. And so that encompasses a lot of things, but we do, you know, hospital, hospital transports, but we, uh, we do quite a bit, especially during the seasons of like, you know, backcountry uh, rescues. Um, and that's anywhere from like, Alpine. So a lot of times I'm in maroon bells over in that area, or, you know, I can be wherever out in the desert, you know, I've gone all the way down to the Creek and Indian Creek and over into Moab and Canyon lands. And so, you know, uh, so I think for people, one of the things I would say is that you never think it's going to be you. And that's the one thing that I think is the Achilles heel of like everyone who who climbs and really gets out and starts adventuring. And especially um, when you start to go to remote places, because even a remote place that you don't think is that remote, if you are severely injured or even say you break a leg, um, one is like, if you're on a wall, you have to get off the wall. So I would recommend that everybody be proficient, at least in self-rescue to, for a minimum, just to get yourself either to a ledge or to get yourself off the wall because I have had to, you know, in situations, even like on Castleton Tower, where there was a woman maybe years ago, five or six years ago, who fell and like fractured her pelvis. And like, you know, we had to get a hoist in to get her out. It was like 
you know, it, it took to get her off the wall. We had to get people on the wall to get her to position where they could hoist her off. Um, and you know, you're looking at like six, seven, eight hours, you know, if bleeding's involved in that, because like, a pelvis can bleed quite a bit, actually, it's a large one. You only have a limited amount of time. So, um, so one of the things I would say is be proficient in self-rescue. Um, never, never expect that someone can get you out. All right, guys, you heard it. Don't assume that someone is going to be able to come and save you. And in our clinics that we teach with High Point Expeditions, one of the things we talk about is all the dangers that could be involved. And one of the things I think that people forget about the most is weather. And how can you be prepared for that? How can you be prepared for that? Having proper gear, clothing, beyond clothing, shameless plug. These guys have supported me since the very beginning. Please go to their website. Use the promo code ALWAYSREADY. Save yourself a little bit of coin and support this podcast. They make clothing for every environment on this big, beautiful blue globe that we live in. It's awesome. I want to give a big shout out to Jason, one of our newest artists that has joined the ranks of the artists that are making all of our wonderful stickers. His sticker is awesome. Please check him out on Instagram. All his details will be on the show notes. So let's get back to the episode. Y'all are righteous. Y'all are rad. It's time to learn how to save yourselves. You need plans, right? You need like A, B, C, and D, right? But never expect that like somebody's going to be able to get you out. That should be the first expectation. I'm not saying that somebody can't get you out. But don't depend on it. Right. And so like the one thing I would say is like to mitigate risk. Like a lot of times, like I went climbing in the winds a couple of years ago with a friend of mine and I wanted to do Black Elk, like Black Elk Speaks, right? It's just like this 11 something. And it's a beautiful looking route. We had done some of the other routes there. And like, I was looking at it and I was thinking like my partner, who's an awesome climber, but just at that time was not in the the greatest shape. And like, I was going to do most of the leading. And I was like, if we get hurt by being like in my profession, I realized like weather is a huge factor in people being able to rescue you or to get in and rescue you. You know, I'm looking at that. I'm like, I'm, I'm going to lead most of this if he gets hurt or I get hurt. Like we're going to get down. There's a huge talus slope just to get off. And then we're like miles in the back country. Right. And so for like a helicopter is our only way out. But even the helicopter, like somebody has to get you off the talus slope down to a place where a helicopter can actually load you up. And that helicopter has to land somewhere that is relatively, I mean, they can land within a, a, a radius that's relatively small, but it has to be larger than the diameter of the rotors and it has to be flat, right? It can't be really you know, and so in the mountain regions, you're talking about like, dude, it's very rugged terrain and there's not a lot of areas that you can really land. And so no, you, you may don't think about that. Yeah. So you may have to land. It could be three, four miles away from you where you could find a spot to actually get a helicopter in to land. And so like, then you have to consider, so this person's going to have to come down a talus slope, right? And say you have a huge injury or even just like, maybe it's not huge, but it's an orthopedic injury that like your leg's broken or whatever. Like, so you're in excruciating pain. You're going to have to get search and rescue to come in, to take you out, right? To get you down the talus slope, to get you and then litter carry you maybe a mile, two miles, three miles, four miles out to get to a helicopter, right? And the other thing you don't consider in all this is the lives that you're putting at risk of all these people coming in who are now carrying you out in precarious situations in which like, and I don't know if anybody's ever done a litter carry, but I will tell you. It is a lot of freaking work. It is. And you try to do it down a talus slope or somewhere where their footing's not good. Like you're putting all those people that are helping you or rescuing you, you're putting them at risk of being injured, right? And if they get injured in the backcountry too, now you have two patients. Now you have three patients, right? And so like the risk factors increasingly go up 
Yeah. And you don't, you don't think about any of that, right? The other thing that people don't think about a lot is if you're in a situation. So one thing I would always recommend for anybody that goes into the backcountry and is seriously going to get themselves out there. One, know what you're doing to be able to self-rescue. Three, have a form of communication. Cell phones are not a guarantee in any backcountry situation. So what would you recommend that in spot, like a spot or in reach and in reach, you can actually send messages through an in reach system. And it's like, satellite linked, I believe. And like, it has GPS. And so like, that's the other thing It's like, people will say, what, what's your, what's your locations? Cause we work on Latin longs, right? If you go into the backcountry, like, like if you have a cell phone, they can ping your cell phone and get a Latin long out of that. But like an in reach or a spot or excellent ways in which people can actually send that information forward because those people need to know where you are. And I will tell you, from the air and even from the ground coming in into big backcountry settings, finding a single person in the backcountry is essentially like finding a needle in a haystack. And you don't think about that. And you may see a helicopter fly over. You may see things. That does not mean they see you. And you think, surely, surely they've seen me. Surely. And I will, no. tell, you, I will tell you the number of times I've flown over and I have spotted people and I've been so lucky. I'm actually really decent at finding people. But you, will, you would not believe the number of times that I have to go out. The number of circles that we have to do to try so to find what folks. would be like the like let's say i don't have a spot and i don't have something but you were able to get like get a message towards out and you your get, location right towards your location and i know this, i know this might sound super silly but to me the first thing that comes to mind and i actually have this in my backpack because it's in my first aid is a signal mirror because like, so signal mirrors might work what i would really recommend though is like if you get those um like uh emergency blankets uh, because they are silver and they are orange and the things that you can really see from the air. So like I have had people multiple times that I have taken out of the backcountry that are wearing dark colors. And they're like one, I've had people set under trees because they're shaded and they don't want to get out from under a tree. Mm-hmm. They don't get into the open. They don't find a, like an open location. High visible locations are good. Bright colors are amazingly essential. And nobody knows that. But like bright yellow, bright pink, bright orange red anything that is vibrant and bright and is not a natural color stands out in an environment um in a way that you would not believe okay so sig- uh, emergency blankets are, i mean i've used an emergency blanket just to keep me warm dude that but- thing is a great signal piece because people and that's something that you can carry in your emergency kit people have all the time and it like one side is silver one side is orange right is there a particular side that works best or it depends I on would the go for the orange if okay. i were you like that yeah. would be my suggestion because it stands out um uh, so, you know, to get into a high place, to be highly visible, to have a highly visible color on you, find a relatively flat area if you need somebody to land. Right. But that that may or may not be your gig. Like usually when we get there, sometimes we're the first responder and there there are no other rescuers in a lot of places. Relatively high traffic. Like if you go into Maroon Bells, right, um, they have the Aspen Rescue System over there that they're, those guys are amazing. And, and they're all super amazing athletes and they'll go into the backcountry. They're really proficient, but there are some places that you go that you don't have those services, you know? And so like the helicopter may be the only thing to get you out. Is there a way for someone when they're planning these trips to know if those services are available? Like, is that readily information? Is that you know informa- that, that, that information is not readily available. Yeah. And I know, and like, so there, there are a couple of things I wanted to spell actually in this that are kind of interesting. And just because like, yeah, no. I actually did a backcountry rescue the other day for a climber, strangely enough. And this guy was and like, not to throw him under the bus, like he was an experienced climber. He was experienced in the outdoors, right? But he was aid soloing in the backcountry in a really remote location. 
he was lucky that one of his party was able to get out and to get a cell signal. It, you know, the extraction for this person took eight hours and and that was with with two helicopters. I didn't so, realize you had two of them. Yeah, out there were two helicopters involved in that two helicopters. The other ones brought in the, the um, sheriff's department and the search and rescue. Without that, I could not have gotten him out because I can't like you think about like a helicopter generally they're they're you know, the way we fly, we fly with a nurse and a paramedic. And so like there and we have a pilot. So there's three of us. We oh, have wow. a, we have a stretcher that's that we can that I've taken out before and you can carry. But like even with that, like say somebody like and I have rescued people up to like 270 pounds, you know, three people carrying a 270 pound person down a towel slope does not work. You're there, right? You're stuck. It's it's a really complicated logistically and people don't think about how much effort goes into that to actually get somebody out of those situations, even for this guy, like, but he was climbing in soft sandstone. He was aid soloing. Um, he got into some A3 territory and shit went sideways. And like, that's the one thing that nobody ever thinks about. And I learned to think about that in a different way after I started doing that as a career. You know, I was talking earlier, dude, like Castle Valley, like Castle Valley is relatively accessible, right? I mean, there's, there, the roads not far from Castleton Tower or the rectory, like all of that stuff is just right there, right? But you think about how far you have to hike in to get to Castleton. Yeah, that's and the, true. And the, and the slope, right? And I've landed in that saddle in between the rectory and Castleton before to pull people out. You, but you don't think about the logistics of getting yourself out or down or like what people have to do. And like, and those are hazardous situations even for us to be in like, and we're trained professionals, right? And like, and I still am like, I'm on high guard when I go into those scenarios because, and you know, the other thing you don't think about is like, and, and I will say this, like, you know, search and rescue and EMS are there to help people just to let everybody know anybody who flies or anybody who does rescue, like their number one concern is that they go home at the end of the night, right? Yeah. It's your crew, those people that you are working for, cause you want to go to your family. Right. And so, and it sounds harsh. No, but that's the reality of right, any, right, but, I mean, but you, you come first and, and, and then the person that you're helping comes second, right? If there's a situation in which you're going to put your life in danger, because it's not what people think people think, or at least I have this interpretation because that's the way I thought about it. Like people who come in to save you, like they're heroes. They like, yeah, they're just people, right? Yeah. Well, you learn that. Like, I remember taking my wolfers training and that was, the, that's the first thing they say, like your safety is paramount. Like the person you're saving safety is second and never make more than one patient. Yeah. Yeah. And that's like uh, people, I agree with you. I, people hear stories of like, this person was my hero and then they rescued me and all this other stuff. But at the end of the day, let's just be honest. Like, yeah, you are a trained professional at what you do. You're a badass with what you do, but it is your job. It is yep. not your life. And your life is here. Yep. Not out there rescuing someone. And I want to do all the things that I want to do. Right. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So at the end of the day, like I'm going to be like, if it is too dangerous or something just, you know, and I have done a bunch of stuff, like I have, I have seen a gambit of things over the years and you know, your risk tolerance is maybe my risk tolerance is not the same as other people, but we still have a, like anybody who flies and anybody who does EMS work is very deliberate in, in the risks that they're willing to take. Yeah, that's true. My buddy Clinton is a pilot. And he talks about that, like even just navigating things like that. He's like, when there's a big storm or nope, things yep. are blowing in, he was like, he was, you know, he, he's like, people get mad at him all the time. He'll, t he, I think he talked about like how they diverted, they were flying from Miami to like O'Hara, like Chicago. Mm -hmm. And he talks about like this big storm and people just got irate that they diverted to BWI and he comes out and he's just like, well, what do you want me to do? Crash the plane? I mean, like 
is you know at the end of the day your whatever you have in chicago or wherever else you have to go at that point is not that important and is nowhere important as the risk of the lives of these people but however pete as you said you know people don't think about everyone else that is involved in yeah. this process and that's the thing like they're they're so the logistical like difficulties or um the logistical challenges of any of those things are pretty people don't really understand how how difficult those situations are for the people who are doing them right it's it's not apparent to you and that's that's parts like anything that, that when somebody does something well right it doesn't look that hard because <laughs> you've done it like you know you look at people running like track and field or whatever or you look yeah. at somebody climbing really hard and you're like and they're a professional and you're like i could do that until you like get on it and you're like holy shit this thing is no way i can't even wrap my mind around what that person just did right yeah you just said that and you made me think of like the one thing in track and field that always looks hard no matter what is the triple jump mm. that's just because it's just awkward yeah it's it's a weird thing i know this is really like sideways turn i know i actually i love track and field so like i'm a super nerd on track and field Yeah, like i did the uh, high jump long jump and uh my my best event was the open eight i don't remember my times but i love that event like i feel like Dude, that that's was, a man's event it's right a there. hard man event a hard man hard woman event it is i will go both ways on that because yeah, like because so, like, I, I still like watch you, the Golden Spike series in, in Europe all the time. YouTube. I will give a shout out to YouTube because you can watch track and field all you want. But like it's a early race. Yeah, man. I look at that because I love like and you said something earlier. So I just want to clarify, like I said, hard man. But like something you said earlier really touched the note with me. And you said, you know, when like the hard man ethic or whatever, and you're like, don't climb like a girl. And I was like, that's actually the one thing I want to climb like. Like the more <laughs> I've climbed, I'm like, dude, I want to climb like a girl. Like. I, you know, coaching over the last 15 years, like women are naturally, women make naturally better climbers than men. And I, I totally and, agree. And everyone who's listening to this podcast, like all you dudes that are hating, you can, you can unsubscribe, unfollow, like dislike, <laughs> do all the things that you can go away with. You can go away now. I don't care. Coaching girls, like in the beginning, like they are just monsters and boys cry so much at a comp and girls just get pissed and then they get back on the wall and then they smash. And boys, I cannot tell you how many boys, same age, same comp, same boulders sometimes, and they're just like breaking into tears about, you know, their little ego is just destroyed. Well, one of the things I think like, so like I was one of those people, like I'm not a very big person, right? Like I'm, you know, like, like five, seven, I'm, like most of my life, I weighed like 130, 35 pounds, but I've always been strong. Like, and one of the things that I think about a lot of times is like strength is like an enemy to climbing. Like yeah. I know Wolfgang Gulick said, like you can never have too much strength. Right. And I, I totally don't disagree with him and his statement. I understand the idea of power strength. The one thing I will say is having strength early, I think is a detriment to climbing in a lot of ways, because like as a boy, particularly myself, like I was really like, I was the guy like somebody's like, can you do a one arm pull up? And I'm like, I don't know. And I'm like, and I did a one arm pull up and I was like, yeah, I can do a one arm pull up. Like first time I ever tried. And that's great. We were talking about that earlier about yeah. like, and I could do a lever. First time I ever tried to do a lever. I can do a, I can do a front lever. It's not hard. Right. For me, I have struggled and struggled for years to develop technique because strength was such a crutch yeah. early on. Yeah. You can rely on it. There is a benefit to being strong and pulling through moves, but eventually at some point in time, those moves or those holds that you pull on get so bad, you have to have technique. I was talking to someone about that earlier today and they were like, you know, what's the most important part of rock climbing? I was, in my professional opinion, rock climbing is broken into three parts. 
50% of all rock climbing comes from your core and your legs. That's like all of the ability to rock climb core and legs. Mm-hmm. 25% comes from your arms. The last 25% is just not scaring the shit out of yourself while you're trying to do it. Yeah. A huge mental portion of that. Oh, for yeah, sure. It's massive. Yeah. So I've climbed with like my Gobart's been a partner of mine in the past. Like I've climbed with some super strong ladies in my life. Like, and I still do. Or one of the things that I think I realized is like when women start, like their upper bodies aren't as strong as men. And so they have to develop technique early on yeah. to compensate for that. And then as you climb more, you get strong. Like it's just a part of being like a climber, right? If yeah. you climb a lot, like it's naturally going to happen, right? You're just pulling all the time. Right. And you develop that strength. And if you had to develop technique before you developed your strength, right. Paul Robinson was saying like when he was young, he like, he was like the skinny little twig kid. And he was like, I can't pull on anything. So he didn't have any musculature. So he developed good technique and then he got, he developed and he started gaining strength. But I think that's a huge advantage. And I think that's one of the reasons I'm always like, dude, like, so my mantra these days is I want to climb like a girl. Cause like, I'm girls, into it. <laughs> like girls, I can rip it up, man. Dude, dude, it's, you remind me of this uh, funny story. I was in the gym a couple months ago and this dude yelled at his friend. He's like, Oh dude, you're just climbing like a little girl. Just do the route. And I just like, and they had said it like four or five times and I couldn't take it anymore. And I turned and I looked at him and I was like, you know, the best climber to ever come out of the state of Texas is a woman, one of the best climbers ever. And he's like, excuse me. And I'm like, Alex Puccio. And he was like, who is that? And granted, he was new to rock climbing. Sure, sure. But like everybody in the room who is a climber, like turned and looked at him and you could see it was that moment on his face where he was, he was just like, like oh, there's shit. obviously something I don't know, you know, and the woman's thrown down more double digit boulders than most men. And so I, I, I can definitely agree with that wholeheartedly, you know, flipping gears one more time, I guess, you know, we've kind of talked about like how your life has changed for climbing and I'm really excited, you know, and I think other people will be really excited to hear that. Like, you know, just because you start a family doesn't mean you have to stop your ambitions for climbing. You know, it just, you have to be more deliberate and intentional about it, you know? And then we've talked about a little bit of rescue. Uh, I guess like more about you is like, is there anything coming up that like you are super excited about? Well, you know, I mean, so when I'm building a moon board in the backyard, because the one other piece of advice I give to any parent is like, if you can move it as close to the house as possible, because like Josh Wharton says that too. And like, there's a bunch of folks that have had kids now. Steve House lives down the road here and just in Ridgeway. And like, those guys are big proponents of like, get it at your house if you can, because you don't have a lot of extra time. Right. And so you got to squeeze it in wherever you can find it. So, if, you know, you got a moon board in the garage or the basement or you even a hangboard. Like I go hangboard, I'm going to hangboard in the morning because in like, you know, you got a limited amount of time. So get after that. Um, the other thing is like, you know, the Black Canyon is not far from the house. Um, How far is it from here? Uh, I can get to the Black in like in probably an hour and 40 minutes. Oh my God. I know, right? We still have to climb there one day. Yeah, dude, we'll go. We should go to the comic relief wall. That'll be good. That's a casual. It'll be nice. a casual black good. day. Good. It won't be. We'll get into some. Yeah, no, we'll do hard. We'll do hard people stuff later. I love that place. It's it's such it's like climbing. So it's a remote alpine setting, like an hour and 40 minutes from your house that you drive to. And 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 it's a serious place like you, you, you have to be proficient. Um, and it's got an ethic there that's pretty old school. Like there's not a lot of bolts. Um, and I don't get off on the whole like hard man thing. And I, I, I do have some things to say about people. Like sometimes the black goes a little over the top in my opinion, but like, whatever, it's fine. Like I climb wherever I climb and I'll, I'll abide by the ethic that's there. Um, but like that place is rad. So, you know, if any of your listeners, like I would highly recommend like be proficient 
be self-sufficient. Can you can you define what be proficient is? Because I don't think I have my own definition of what that is, but I would really like for like just real short. So if you go to like an old school area, like say like the black, right? You need to know how to place gear. You need to know how to build anchors on your own. There will there are limited if any. Like there's no anchor stations there, right? No bolts. No bolts. There's still there's there's bolts, but like be prepared to run into like old star drives and like homemade Ooh. hangers um, that are like on like quarter inch screws, like <laughs> let me then that may spin when you hit them, you know. Um, so be able to um, move efficiently. Um, be able to understand when you're overcome either by terrain or by weather and to retreat. And that may mean that, you know, you may need to take the walk of shame out of the gullies in a place like that or wherever you are and, and how to do that in a, like a safe manner and, and leave gear behind if you have to. Um, and then know what your options are for, rescue if you need that because like if you go climb in the black black has a great the black canyon has a great uh rescue team there um but not every place is like that and so you need to know what those options are as well and be prepared to always rescue yourself first like that's probably the number one is like if you get in over your head and like we had this conversation and i don't know if it was with you or somebody else the other day but I, I said, you know, when you start out climbing, at least when I started climbing, and I think it's actually true if you go adventure climbing a lot, is you start out with, you know, in one hand is you have a handful of luck, you know, and that one's filled and you have a handful of experience. And when you start, it's empty. And when you get to be an old climber, like you, you don't have much luck left, but you have a, a lot of experience. Right. And you need to rely on that experience. And and I think that, you know, like we were talking about when you find a new partner or you start climbing with a partner and you hope that person maybe know, knows a little bit more than you know when you're yeah. new, right? Like you go through that journey together. And I think part of that is that just understanding the experiences that you gain and being able to, um, to extrapolate those into, you know, new climbs, new adventures, and to be able to, to protect yourself and to hopefully get out okay. Because not everybody does. And it's a real, it's a real thing. And like, and I've been lucky in my life because I've climbed in a lot of places and I've done some, some sketchy hairball <laughs> shit and I, and, and I got away with it. Right. And I got away with it because I was young and dumb. And, and as I've gotten older, like I've realized, like I can still climb, I actually climb harder than I ever climbed when I was a kid. Um, but now, but I still, I, my safety margins are, are much larger. Yeah. You know, you, in this, when you were talking, I think one of the biggest things, you know, and I will say to people is when you, when you're thinking about like safety and knowing, and knowing this, one of the biggest things is just know when to turn around. Mm -hmm. Like, just like, you want to know, like my biggest advice to self-rescue and the biggest tip and tool, everyone knows how to do this in self-rescue. This is the biggest self-rescue. Just lower down, turn around, call it a day. Yeah. Cause like, it's just not worth it. Like it just isn't. And I can't think I, you know, I have done that more times. If you would have asked me this like 10 years ago, I would say I would have done this more times than I'm willing to admit. But now I'm like, I don't really care. Like I've definitely turned around on many, many, many routes. You know, granted I've sent I've climbed more than I have done that. But the point is, it's like a lot of times that I have saved myself from headache. It's just been like, you know, something, this is just not today. And some days it's like the route. Some days it's my head. Some days it's definitely been weather. 
Yeah. You know, I definitely have been in the situation where, uh, actually I think I was in the, I want to say I was in the gash. I was in the gash mm-hmm. and I just remember feeling the barometric pressure just plummet. And I was like, it is time to leave. Like, I don't care where we were. And I want to say that was it because it was, it was either that or like just the weather had changed so abruptly. And I was like right in the middle of like getting ready to, to, um, like just go for a send. And I had been working on this route all day and it was the last day that we had. And we were driving out after that. And I just remember being like, no, no, I'm just like, because if you guys live in Colorado or if you ever try them here, but like the notch and the gash are two great place, but the hang and the bling at the gash is terrible. Yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty it's ugly. Great rock climbing. In it my is. opinion, great rock, climbing, but it is a terrible place. Another Jeff Jackson and DR. I'll, I'll give a shout out to DR. Cause that's the other guy in that whole scenario. I think DR's from Oklahoma. Um, and he's the was the editor of Rock and Ice. I don't know if he still is or not. No, he's not. He I think he just recently retired. And yeah, now but like those those guys were both like both climbed early on in the Wichita's back in the day in Oklahoma. And like and I have like a so one of my really good friends knows DR really well. And like so those guys, but like you know th- that's the thing is like and so like and even in the gash and the notch, right? Like those are those are relatively easy places to escape. Yes, if you have to escape, right? But if you get into the the thing is like when you were talking about that, like, so I was talking to my friend, Rob Pism is a good friend of mine. And he was talking to some kids like, so he had some young guys who were really stoked and they went into the winds to climb some stuff like, and it was an Alpine environment. And they had like this tick list that they were going to do in the Alpine and, and for anybody that's never climbed in the Alpine or wants to climb in the Alpine, like it's an endeavor because people don't think about like, not only like search and rescue from a perspective, like we talked about that earlier, but the other thing to talk about is like, what you don't think about is like, you have to hike in miles, sometimes 10, 15, 20 miles to get into an area, right. With a full pack and say you want to stay for like a week, right. So you're packing like a tent, you're packing a week's worth of food, all your climbing gear and everything that you need. And then the other thing you don't think about is so every day you go climbing, right. You want to do a big route. So you do a big route in the mountains. One is you're at altitude. Two is, you have to get water. So, and that's mountain snow usually, or, or, or you get a stream, stream. So you got a stream, but you got to filter it. Right. So you filter your water out and then you got to cook every day. So you have to cook breakfast. You got to eat like, and say you take stuff on the wall. That's fine. You get off the wall. If you make it off the wall in a, in a reasonable time, you still have to cook dinner that night. Right. And then you have to go to bed, you get up the next day and like, and you don't think about the wear and tear and like even approaching any of the walls. Once you've got in that 20 miles or the 10 miles, like through mountainous terrain, then you have to approach climb, which usually involves like at least a mile or two and several thousand vertical feet to get to the base of your climb. And now you're climbing these climbs, right? So it's like, it's, it's like logistic whole thing, right? And it's like, and so he was talking about these young guys that were super stoked and they had this like whole tick list and he hiked in real quick to go do one with them. And these guys got totally like, and the, and the other thing is like, you're in the, you need to be up by like, Oh, these are alpines beyond like, I mean, this is alpine start to the fullest. Right, exactly. Because you're thinking like in the high alpine, you want to be done by noon generally, right? If you can be. And that's if you're, if you're on top of it and you're climbing really well. And, but like a lot of these folks are, are if you're not like, if you, and look, I've been there, like I bumbled around and all of that. And like, you're moving too slow and then you can either get caught in weather or you get, you maybe get a weather window and you're lucky. But if you get, you know. You get done at the mid, like at night, like I do, there's headlamp finishes to all this, like, right. And now you got to go down and you got to cook dinner and you got to get up the next, you know? So it's just like, it's, it's way more than you think it is. So like the one thing I would always tell people is like, slow down, slow down your objectives. Like we're not in a gym. Shit's not going to go up the way you think it's going to go up. 
and you need to take your time and enjoy the experience and think about like, give yourself rest days, give yourself time in between. It doesn't have to be an epic. No, because that's what ends up happening, right? Is people like want to push these agendas and like the mountains don't have an agenda. The mountains have themselves. Like you're, you're at the mercy of, of the mountains. You're at the mercy of the weather. And so you need to be really cognizant of what you're doing in there. Because once again, if you're not, then you end up in a search and rescue situation. And then people like me have to come in and we would rather not, we would rather you just have a great day and, and, and not have to worry about your, your safe, your, your emergency blanket and like getting littered out of somewhere, you know? Yeah. So it's like, you know, it, it's, there's a lot of things. I think it's a whole learning process. And I think it's just part of like accepting, like you're just a small part in a big system. Right. And it's about learning how to, to move through that and to be a part of it and to enjoy the experience. You know, it's funny, like this whole conversation is revolving back to, uh, you know, our original, uh, what we were talking about, our original topic. And honestly, I'm like thinking of play again and, you know, think about it, like riding my bike with my best friend and, you know, you go over one ramp and then you do that ramp like a couple of times. You do that ramp where you pull up your, you pull up the front of your bike. You do that ramp where you try to do a hop off of it. You do that ramp and then you move your way up to a bigger ramp. But like you've done this other one multiple different times. You've done this other one multiple different ways. And then you move to the bigger ramp and play is much like that. Like that is how play is. I think, you know, as you talked about, like, you know, people get into the situation where like coming from the gym, they expect things to be cush. But like, I think we're almost like forgetting what the process of play is like. Play builds on top of each other. It builds on top of itself. And I think what we really need to do is just like enjoy playing out in the outdoors but understand that it is part of a process because that's what I'm, I don't know. That's just no, like I, I, think you, I think you hit the nail on the head. I think the difference is between when I started climbing and now is that like you had to take those steps because there was no alternative, right? Like there was no place to go and safely practice without, I mean, we could boulder like I bouldered early on, but like there, like you, I went track climbing like straight out of the gate. Cause that's what there was, right? There was some, there was sport climbing around like in the early nineties, it was still, you know, sport climbing was coming into its own, but it wasn't to like the level it is today. And like the idea of safety margins were different. Right. And like, and people were still like, there was, that was the end of the era of the bolting or not bolting, like the whole John Backer and, um, and, um, Ron Kalk. I remember those conversations, you know, like, and not that those two guys, but there, that's the example of like Ron Kalk bolted piece and John Backer on the same dome on Mendicott dome put up, uh, Oh, the backer, backer Yerian, you know, is like, that's like that whole, like the end of that conversation, essentially, you know, when like people finally embraced, like bolting was an acceptable thing. And like, so you could go sport climbing, but like a big portion of that was like, I had to learn how to track climb. And like, I learned how to track climb, like the hard way, right. That everybody used to learn how to track climb that way. Like you, and I didn't even think about it. Like that was just like the way that I had to learn to climb. And so you like, you went out with your partner and like, you kind of fiddled around with a couple of pieces of gear and the, he showed me like, and it's still like one of my, one of my favorite climbing partners that, you know, we've been climbing for like 27 years together. Still, we climb together and like, you know, and that's the other thing you were talking about. It's just like the, the bonds that you make with people too, like in that situation where you, you really show who you are, I think fundamentally, because they see you at your best and at your worst too. And yeah, dude, that's, uh, that is the send and the suffer of rock climbing. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, like, I think that was the difference back in the day. Like you were forced into that early on into that arena and, and those steps of like 
accumulating experience and like that whole repetition of like, you know, the little ramp was like, well, we do smaller climbs and then you get a bigger climbs. And then like all of a sudden you're like, and you're multi-pitching together. And then like, you know, cause it started bouldering to like single pitch to like multi-pitch. And then you're doing big, like bigger walls together. And it's that, and it's that experience, that, that experiential thing that like, like why in the gym, you can learn to be strong and you can learn movement and it's really um, gymnastic and physical. Like there's a whole portion of climbing that I think is really important, which is also just like, you know, just that, that mental aspect of it. And then also just like that accumulation of knowledge about like, you know, like how to get yourself out of a bad fucking situation or just like, you know, I still like, and there are people like, so I, you know, we're, we've talked about the black today, but dude, I still go see Jim Danini still climbs in the fucking black in the seventies, dude. I see that dude there and, and he climbs fucking hard still like well into the five elevens. And I'm sure like he could climb harder if he wants And Like some of those climbs in there, you're talking like 2000 feet in a day or more. And like, if you get in with like serious approaches, like if it's downhill, like some of them, like, like the cruise gully and like the, um, SOB gully, like they're pretty, I won't say mellow, but they're not like what you would think, but there are some gullies like prisoner of my hairdo and stuff like that in there that are still just like full on epics just to get to the bottom of the Canyon. And that dude's still fucking going down there in his seventies. So you know, and I mean, he was a premier alpinist in for like years, like yeah. the, the, the dude's still fucking yoked. Of course, he doesn't have any kids. So maybe that's why, but I was like, about to say, there's, there, there's definitely <laughs> something that's allowing him to still do this. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, I, I'm, I got listening to you. I'm thinking of a question that I was actually recently asked. And do you recommend people to build the base? Because, you know, a lot of people still argue about whether that's necessary or not building your base. Like, doing like you should do X amount of five nines of sport and trad. You should do X amount of this, X amount of this and build your base up all the way up to before you ever touch five twelve. before you ever touch five thirteen. Well, I mean, you can, you, there's always the argument, like what, what is a, what is like a five ten climber, right? Or what is a five nine climber? Like I've heard this argument made in the past and like, I don't uh, know. What is that argument? Actually, I've never actually heard. That. So like the argument goes basically like if you're a five nine climber, you can fly, you can climb anything that's five nine or if you're a five ten okay. climber. So you can climb like five ten sport, five ten trad, five ten slab, five ten. Like you can, you can climb any five ten, right? And of course, like the other thing I would like your listeners to know that you should always look at the date that anything was put up because <laughs> that will fuck you in the ass harder than anything you've ever known in your life. Because I have done five nine plus R in like and it was put up in like 1970 or 1972 or 1968 Might as well be 5 it could be you don't know right and so that's the thing because they didn't exist at that point in time or at least those boundaries were like the limits and people didn't think they were climbing at the limits so like the one thing i would always suggest people look at is like the year something was put up and the area it was put up i would always say that like building a base is a great thing i think experientially like I think just the more that you learn, the more that you know, and I would always recommend, and especially going to a new area, start way easier than you think you should. I did that in Vita Wu, uh, in the Wu, and I started on 5.4, and it was terrifying. Yeah, right? That place is, I think like four days into it, I finally did 5.9, and I pretty sure I cried and shit at myself at the same time on that day. Well, I remember you getting on, what did we do? Moon shadow and you know, Oh yeah, dude, that thing was hard. Yeah. That's five ten. 
Yeah, whatever, dude. Una Weep, Casey Blum, Sandbagger. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, Sandbagger. Yeah, that dude. Yeah, for oh, sure, dude. I remember that. That route was just like I, I fought for that thing. I believe I caught you off the start. Yes. Yeah. Right away. Fell like. By the way, by the caught means not like on a piece of gear. I actually physically like, caught Mario <laughs> as he fell. <laughs> oh, 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 wow. Oh, man. That was wild. Oh, man. Well, it's been good having this chat. Uh, I was cute. I always like to give people an opportunity at the end. Is there anybody you want to like give a shout out to or anybody you want to promote or just tell people to like direct people to? Uh, and then, you know, if you want people to find you on the internet, where can they find you? If not, you know, just go full ghost status. It's your choice. Yeah. I, the only thing I would like to recommend is like, just find something you love to do. Be careful out there. Enjoy yourselves. Like anything that like the relationships you will make with your partner will last for a lifetime, especially the people that are really important to you. Just remember climbing's just, it's fun and it's, it's nonsense and it's, it's don't take yourself too seriously. Amen. Enjoy the people you're around. Enjoy the places that you go. And in the end, just I hope that climbing makes you like a better person because it has that potential to like expand your life in so many different directions and to be a love that you can have to last a lifetime. And you can climb as an old man or an old woman and enjoy it as much as you did when you were young. Believe me. And just take care of yourselves. Please, I don't want to pick you up. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. All right, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, you just heard it. Get an inReach, get a spot, have a solar blanket, but most importantly, have an exit strategy, have a plan. Haminator and I talked about this on a past episode. I know the information isn't readily available. Well, who can rescue you? But let's just be honest. We don't want to have to put those people to work. My buddy just wants to go home to his families and rock climb and give you some high fives. Happy sending, boys and girls.